Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm happy that you're joining us today. I'm Bob Weathers. Really happy to be here. Uh, and I have a guest today, Bruce Lupin. And uh, Bruce and I will be sharing together. We, we uh, work together at Beginnings Treatment Centers. In fact, by way of introduction, let me just say this quickly because it'll help form kind of the backbone of where we go today. My background's in psychology, and as I've mentioned in previous weeks, I am currently a professor of clinical psychology at California Southern University, work with students on their doctoral dissertations, many of which center around topics of addiction and recovery. Very interested in this whole area academically, and that's much of my uh, professional background. The other part of what I do is I operate as a recovery coach. I uh, see clients locally uh, uh, in my private practice office and also lead groups at treatment centers, especially uh, uh, beginnings treatment centers. I've been very involved at beginnings treatment centers now for the last couple, two and a half years. I met Bruce in the context of our work at, at, at Beginnings and want to give a shout out to Beginnings because they are direct sponsors of this weekly podcast, Ask Addiction Specialists. So really grateful for you to be here with us today. Great Thank to you. Have you, Bruce. Appreciate that, <laughs> good, Bob. Good, great good, to be here yeah, and uh, looking forward to the to the dialogue. Great, great. Me too. Me too. Just a, a quick introduction. Last week we talked about the two faces of shame and uh, we talked about how shame is on the one hand a, a threat to uh, social acceptance and on the other hand is a threat to self-esteem and we went in depth into that. And uh, we're going to be looking at two other aspects of shame today around definitions. In fact, we'll be focusing on <clears throat> differentiating shame from a, another unpleasant emotion, guilt, and be talking about how that distinction is useful or maybe even crucial, uh, especially in the context of addiction and recovery. Bruce, we present to uh, various audiences, watch us. We have individuals who are uh, seeking recovery themselves. We have loved ones of individuals in recovery, and we also have uh, healthcare providers of okay. those that are working with individuals in recovery. So um, our topic uh, our topic today, shame and guilt, shame versus guilt will be situated looking at how it applies to recovery. Yeah. Uh, just as a, a quick reminder from previous conversations, I want to encourage you to submit questions today. Bruce and I are here. We're live in person and would love to invite your comments and questions as we move along. Austin Armstrong is one of our co-producers in, in the room today along with Odie Martinez and Austin will be happy to field your questions if you want to send those through Facebook or to uh, YouTube uh, in the chat function. He'll, he'll uh, put those questions up on the screen and Bruce and I can respond to those. While I'm thinking of that, you're also welcome to look at the uh, view, any of the archived videos of almost a year now of this particular um, uh, podcast, Ask Addiction Specialist. You can find that archive at YouTube. You can find it on our Facebook page, Ask Addiction Specialist. You can also go to beginningstreatmentcenters.com and there's an entire archive there. Just look up podcasts and track down Ask Addiction Specialist. And we have a whole series now over almost a year. So I uh, want to encourage you to access uh, those resources. Finally, want to encourage you to reach out to friends and let them know about what we're doing. We really appreciate uh, viewers interacting with us. The more we have, the merrier we are. So <laughs> please put out the good word. And uh, you're welcome to invite people to join us today or in weeks to come. We meet every Wednesday at 3 o'clock Pacific time. So uh, bring your family and friends and, and join in. 
So back to today's topic, we're going to be looking at the distinction between uh, shame and guilt and why that's important in recovery from addiction. So just quickly, in terms of definitions, uh, Bruce and I just came from a group right now where we put this question out to the group and there were definitions given that helped to uh, discern the the difference between shame and guilt, you'll see in this next slide that one very quick definition is, is to look at it this way. Guilt comes up as an unpleasant emotion when I've done something bad. Shame, on the other hand, is an unpleasant emotion that actually takes it one step further and says, I am something bad. I even choose the term something when you typically think of someone, I am someone bad. But I want to say this, I think that shame turns me into a thing. I think I think that that mm. when I when I when I turn shame on myself, I'm no longer fully acknowledging I'm a human being. I am now a thing that can be judged, and so I actually use that term purposefully. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am some thing as opposed to someone bad. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah. And there's a disconnection. The right? disconnection. And, and isolation. I know you're going to talk about it. Yeah. Bit, yeah. There's an isolation from one another in shame. And as we'll be talking about, there's an isolation isolation within ourselves, too, mm -hmm. where we, in a sense, abandon or, or desert ourselves. We'll be talking about the downside of shame uh, in, a, in reference to guilt throughout today's uh, podcast. So I uh, want to talk about shame and guilt from a psychological perspective for just a, a minute or two, and then we'll be moving towards a practical application of what we're talking about, including some exercises later on. Psychology talks about attribution theory, and it's helpful to understand this distinction between shame and guilt to apply it to uh, to the to attribution and to actually think of two different kinds of attribution. So let me see if I can explain that. Let's start off. I know I asked you this question recently. What does the word attribution mean to you, Bruce? What does attribution mean? To me, uh, well, to me, it means something that has been attributed to me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 It's just, it's just break it down. I think all of us are familiar with that term. We probably don't use this term in a theoretical sense, but we all know what it's like to attribute responsibility or blame to somebody else. We also know what it's like to have a, a responsibility or blame attributed to us. So it's basically assigning responsibility or uh, attributing uh, to an individual. Well, there's two kinds I said. The first kind that psychology talks about is a situational attribution. And it means pretty much what it says. So for example, the example I, I'll use is what I used earlier. If I accidentally step on Bruce's foot, um, uh, a situational attribution would say this. Bob was clumsy in that moment because he was distracted, let's say, or he was tired, okay. whatever, whatever might be going on. And so we'd say, uh, well, ideally, I would step on your toe. My feedback would be, that's not okay with me. I would feel bad. I would feel bad about stepping on Bruce's toe. And that feeling of bad would be, I did something wrong. I stepped on your toe. That's what we just defined as guilt. And so guilt in this case would be what psychology calls a situational attribution. And it actually is feedback because with that feedback, I'm less likely to do that again. I'm less likely to be distracted, less likely to step on your toe. And so it's like putting your hand on a hot, hot stove. You want feedback. Well, I put my foot on your, your foot. I want feedback from that so I can change my behavior. And so a situational attribution is very helpful that way. Mm -hmm. In this understanding, guilt is actually uh, useful and helpful. Let's look at the second kind of attribution, and that would be a dispositional attribution. Let's say the same scenario. Let's say that I step on Bruce's foot, but this time walk away. Actually, I step on your foot, and it goes into, 
I am a clumsy oaf. I can't believe I did that. I always do that. In fact, that's all I ever do. And let's say to add fuel to the fire that Bruce reinforces that. Mm -hmm. Bruce says, what an idiot you are, Bob. There you are doing what you always do, stepping on people's feet, etc. Don't you ever pay attention? You probably can't pay attention. Do you see, you get the flavor of this? What we're calling a dispositional attribution is that I might start with Bruce, it might start with me, but let's say in this case, both of us start attributing what I did to my character. That's what psychology calls your disposition. So, so rather than it being a situation where I was distracted, it has something to do with just who I, who, what my essence is. And really what we're saying is my essence is broken or defective, is that there you are, you're just an idiot. And with an attribution to disposition of being, clums uh, being a clumsy person or being stupid, um, there's less wiggle room. And in fact, it's something that we talked about earlier is that if I step on your foot and it goes into this latter attribution, into a dispositional attribution, ironically, I'm actually less apt to change my behavior. And why would that be? Because a dispositional attribution makes us feel so bad, it moves into a shame response. So rather than my having done something bad, now I am something bad. And if I am something bad, my, uh, my uh, uh, impulse is to want to crawl into a hole someplace. So shame doesn't actually empower me. Shame shuts me down. And so ironically, my feeling bad in this case doesn't serve as positive incentive at all to change. Guilt does give incentive. I'm sorry I did that and I can change my behavior and we're back to being good buds. Shame would shut me down and you used the word isolate a minute ago. No. Shame will isolate you, isolate me from not only you, it'll isolate me from the part of me that's motivated to make a difference. And so in that sense, it's whole system shutdown or paralysis. Does yeah. that make sense? Oh, that makes total sense. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's really, it kind of builds on itself too, right? Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. So. I think the poor get poorer with this. Let's say that I already come in, psychology calls it shame proneness. So let's say that I come in already vulnerable or prone to shame. And then I step on my foot. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. There, you did it again, Bob. And then let's say on top of that, you decide to pour some gas on the fire to say, there, you did it again, Bob. That's right. And so you can see that it's a vicious cycle I can get into. It's very hard to get out of it. It's a little bit like being stuck in the La Brea tar pits. Once you put your foot in it, you're stuck in it. Uh, this is such an important issue in psychology that it's referred to as the fundamental attribution error. That's the next slide. The fundamental attribution error. And it's fundamental because it's fundamental to us as human beings. And it's also fundamental to our suffering. So there's different ways that goes. I was thinking of it as we were driving here today from, from beginnings as we were driving here. And I'd like to have said this more clearly today in the group is that If I'm, if I'm in a shame-prone state, I'm more vulnerable to depression, anxiety, and other forms of distress, and it goes something like this. If we stick with this example, I know it's a simple example, but you can apply it to, and we will apply it to bigger issues, bigger fish in just a moment. If Bruce steps on my foot, my attribution error would be this. I'll say to Bruce, oh, he was just distracted. Whereas if Bob steps on Bruce's foot, I attribute it to something wrong with me, something mm -hmm. bad about me, something defective or broken about me. Do you see the difference there? Mm -hmm. And so I'll extend grace, let's say, 
or forgiveness to you, and I won't do that to myself. And that can become what you just put your finger on. That can become kind of a recurring cycle that I get into where where there's any number, because all of us are stepping on somebody's foot some of the time, yeah. if you add up all the things that we do. And if I'm constantly reflecting that back as, as a, a confirmation of me being fundamentally defective, and at the same time I'm releasing you, Yep. By saying it was just a situation, it was just a circumstance, you can see how it gets loaded unfairly. And soon enough, I'm in a mire and I'm seeing everybody else as being okay except for me. And that would be one way to see how a shame-prone style, a shame-prone personality that say, can eventually devolve into serious depression, serious little lack of self-esteem and so on. Does that part make sense? Yeah, because what you're saying is that you're kind of approaching the situation mm -hmm. already already kind of it's already the lens through which I see reality right. yeah, that makes sense yeah just to reinforce that this next slide where we say just to remind us the, the the lens is this is that I'm coming into a situation with a shame lens which which assumes that I'm something bad or someone bad and so it's just it's just it's really scanning to look for confirmation for that right. and uh, huh. I, you know after the group today there's a gentleman in the group today who asked me about this he said he said Bob we were both talking to different people and he, he said Aren't there some people out there, aren't there some people that are more comfortable with that? Even though it's uncomfortable, uh, you'd think, who wants to feel shame? Isn't it possible that can become kind of your equilibrium or your balance state? And I said, absolutely. Is that if, if I'm used to being ashamed, at least it's familiar. And so you'd think, why would somebody want to stay in that? Because there's nothing pleasant about it, except there is some comfort of having things be predictable. And so you, I can predict the fact that I'm gonna suck at everything I do. Right. That's painful, it's tragic to see in another person, but there's a way that that becomes what we're familiar with. And if you think about, let's say, growing up in an environment that is incredibly blaming and shaming, and that becomes my inner blueprint, let's say. My blueprint becomes one of, of having internalized that is that that actually becomes uh, familiar and ironically, tragically, becomes even a source of comfort. It's like, at least I know who I am. I'm somebody who oh, wow. goes around being clumsy all the time. And we all have these attributions. I'll give you an example, yeah. and maybe you can think of an example. Here's an example. In third grade, my girlfriend was Kathy Cromarty. <laughs> I remember You Kathy. remember her name. Oh, I remember every girlfriend I had. Wow. <laughs> no, I, Kathy, but she was special. Uh, she was she was very tall and skinny, and I was very tall and skinny. We happened to be I was white and she was black. Her uh, father was our family dentist, Dr. Cromarty, and she was I was a pretty sharp kid. She was really sharp too, and so and she was pretty to me. She was really attractive, and so we were sitting in class one day, and Mrs. Mankey, uh, our third grade teacher, came in and she put on some music and she wanted us everybody in class to draw to it, and so. I, uh, I drew what I heard, and uh, actually I remember what I drew. I drew a choo-choo train. I drew a railroad train, because that's what it reminded me of. And I didn't pay any attention. Kathy was sitting at the desk next to me. I didn't pay any attention to what she was drawing. Well, Mrs. Mankey came down the, the way, and she looked at mine, uh, and she says, you know, probably something like, that's a decent train. <laughs> She looked at Kathy's and she picked up Kathy's and showed it to the whole class. Kathy, unbeknownst to me, had drawn the Grand Canyon. Turns out that the, what we, the teacher was playing was the Grand Canyon Suite, which is a classical piece of music. 
not that I ever knew that. Yeah. <laughs> and so just the idea, just the idea that Kathy would know that and then draw it. And I, I remember that. I don't think it's the best example, but I remember having enough experiences of being kind of embarrassed by my substandard drawing that it was never something I really focused on. It's no accident that the very next year, I switched from playing piano to playing drums, and I've played drums ever since then because I gravitated towards music. And I don't know that I would ever been a great artist, but I, I had enough experiences. And even now, if you say, hey, Bob, draw something, I would probably say to you, I'm not a good artist. Yeah. Whether that's accurate or not, I can guarantee you one thing, I haven't practiced it. So I'm not a practiced artist. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm fairly creative by nature, and it certainly manifests musically. You can hand me almost any musical instrument, I can do that. So let's just assume that I got some messages that I interpreted for whatever reason into Bob's not a good you know, visual artist. Who's to say that's accurate? That's an example of a dispositional attribution that's been with me my whole life. And when I ask groups like the group that we were just in, if I ask a group of people, I'll do this sometimes when I lead a drum circle, I'll say, how many of you have experienced an embarrassing or shaming encounter around art or music in a group? Half the people will raise their hands. So half of those people had experiences like I had with Kathy Cromarty and Mrs. Mankey, some version, and they'll say, I don't draw or I don't play music, and they'll be embarrassed by it. And I feel like it's important to at least get that on the table so we can talk about that. That's an example, a very simple example that came to my mind right yeah. now. I don't think it's paralyzed me in my life, but it has been no friends to my artistic potential. <laughs> well, you've taken it on as something that, yeah. that you just live with. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It goes unquestioned. Right. It's a sense of being kind of a conviction that I don't think it's a big deal. I actually, as I'm thinking about it right now, I just want to burst into tears and weep. No, not really. But I mean, it's, it's really not okay that I cut that part off of me, and it's really not been developed probably ever since then. Yeah. I was eight years old. <laughs> That's 55 right. years ago. 55 years of non-artistic pursuits, and I probably have drawn like five drawings in 55 years. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, that's an opportunity for you to... Start drawing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you'll yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. Does that resonate for you? It does, yeah. I mean, I can think of probably a lot of examples, but similarly, you, you, you took me back to school a little bit, and um, I think I had a similar experience in math. Yeah, a lot of people have this in math. And A lot of people have this in math. And yeah, uh, yeah. I kind of I wasn't getting it very easily. It wasn't clicking, and I remember Bobby... Uh, McBride, who sat See, this, you remember names too. <laughs> in the seat next to me, he was really good at math. Mm. And I remember the teacher coming over and, you know, just giving him all these kudos yeah. for how good he was. Yeah, yeah. And then, then there was me, who yeah. had a lot of red marks yeah, on my... Yeah, yeah. And from that time on, it was probably like fourth grade, maybe, yeah. fifth grade, yeah. I, I just always said I, I, I'm no good at math. That's exactly it. And from that time on, all the way through school, I was like, I'm just, I'm just not good at math, so I, yeah. I avoided math and yeah. you know, the whole kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I took that on. Yeah. And I found out later when I had, you know, you know later as an adult, I'm actually not that bad at, I mean, I'm not that bad at math, but I have this block of, of trying to take it any further. Because I think it's like a limitation I yeah, yeah. have taken on. I appreciate you sharing it. So whether it's math or art, 
um, or any example that we can think of, it can have an impact on our lives. And if you imagine that we have any number of these experiences that begin to block off parts of ourselves, the math part of you, the art part of me, and so on it goes, is it's not hard to imagine that you get into adulthood having emerged from your developmental years, particularly in school, but not just school, also your family of origin, with these certain kind of prohibitions, I just don't do math, I just don't pursue yeah. it any further. I don't do art. I do one drawing every 10 years. It's like, <laughs> that's, really, really limiting if you imagine that. And so we're going to talk very practically about this, and we're going to tie this more directly into how this can go in and around addiction and recovery in just a few moments. Mm -hmm. Let's review for just a second, is that if guilt is I did something bad, uh, like I, I did a, a math assignment with a lot of red marks, or, or guilt is I didn't draw the Grand Canyon, then you kind of take it with a grain of salt. But if it turns it into you don't do math and I don't do art, then that really is moving into the zone of shame, which basically erases forward movement. In fact, the next slide says, guilt motivates us to change. If you get a math assignment that flies with red marks and you haven't yet been sunk by it, you can say, doggone it, I'm not gonna do that again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat Bobby McBride on the next assignment, on this assignment. And the same for me with Kathy Cromarty. I draw, you know, the Taj Mahal on the next one. You take that <laughs> yeah, and see what right, you think right. of that, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But in fact, what, it, what shame does is it freezes us. The way it goes in the brain is this, is that in the interior part of our brain, the midbrain, uh, we've got three major functions, the fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Fight is you move towards somebody aggressively. Flight is what it sounds like, you run away in fear. And freeze gets us in the zone of shame, is that freeze is actually where you stop in your tracks, like playing possum, you, you, act, you act dead. Well, there's a sense that your math and my artistic potential, they play possum now. They kind of went into quiescence, they go, they kind of, they kind of fall by the wayside. Mm. And, that's, and that's indicative of the shame, is the shame response shuts us down. And so, whereas guilt will motivate us, create incentive, shame basically pulls a rug out of any motivation or incentive. I just want not to do math. And so typically what we'll do is we'll avoid that. I'll avoid art, you'll avoid math, you know, to, to oversimplify it. Mm -hmm. So quickly then, shame paralyzes. And what we're suggesting here is that guilt actually frees us up. Guilt frees me up to correct my behavior, whether it's an assignment or stepping on Bruce's foot or my drawing a piece of art. It frees me up to do that. Shame is just the opposite. It clamps down the system. To put this in terms of a more psychological or emotional frame, guilt will open my heart. So if I've wronged you, let's step away from my stepping on your foot and just, if I've wronged you in some way, and there's no way that we can't, if we're friends, we'll eventually say something that hurts the other person's feelings, misunderstanding or whatever like that. And you let me know, Bob, you offended me by what you said. With, with that feedback, guilt will keep my heart open. And I'll say to you, I mean, I'll start by saying, I care about you, Bruce, and I'm really sorry I did that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can understand why you're upset and I'm upset that I did it, and I'm gonna change, and I'm gonna show you how. I mean, all of that is built into an apology, let's say. It comes naturally if my heart's open. If my heart closes down, and you come to me with that, what will I look like to Bruce? Chances are, I'll look defensive with Bruce. It even gets worse. I can actually look like I don't care. Mm -hmm. So here's Bruce as my friend. Mm -hmm. I've done something to offend or hurt you. You bring it to my attention, but I'm in a shame re response to that. I may look like I'm cavalier or indifferent. And how's Bruce going to feel? How would that feel if you shared something like you hurt, you hurt my feelings and I, and I 
I just go so. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, by all my behavior. Oh yeah, I mean, I feel like, what's up? Yeah, you know? what's up? Like, it's it's upsetting. It's it's yeah. it's confusing. It's upsetting. You might get pissed off at me. You might yeah. feel hurt. You might you might go away scratching your head. You might go away feeling rejected. It's like I thought I I thought Bob and I are friends, and plenty of people have relationships that blow up over this. Is that shame will make it look? You know, you've got somebody who's got no emotion on their face, and they'll say, "Well, I'm not going to hang around somebody who doesn't care about me." And as we talked about today in the group, ironically, I care so much about you that I'm so affected by what you've said, and it happens as a dovetail with my shame. I care so much. It's not that I care so little. I care so much that I'm paralyzed. I'm like a deer in the headlights. You only see the deer in the headlights. You don't see what's going on inside of me. And so, plenty of relationships stall right at that point. That's so sad, too. It is sad. It is it's sad. sad because really, what you really want is a connection, but you're unable yeah. to yeah. make it. Yeah, it is sad. It is sad. Hmm. There is hope in all of this. There is hope, but the hope is in the guilt. And so, I actually like the terms. I use these terms sometimes in groups. I make a distinction between rightful guilt. I should feel guilty for having hurt your feelings. I really, and I, I think you need to see that that it's not okay with me. Mm -hmm. Not okay with me that I did it and that it, that it actually hurts me to hurt you because I care about you. That to me is rightful guilt and it steers me in the direction of correcting things. Whereas the way that we're talking about shame today is I see shame as toxic. There's different definitions of shame, but we're gonna select this definition for today, which is that shame is by definition toxic. The freeze response that cannot take responsibility, in fact, the freeze response that keeps me from changing my behavior, that's toxic. That's poisonous to relationship, and it's poisonous to ourselves in terms of forward movement. Sure. Let's do this. Let's open it up beyond math tests and failed art projects and talk about applications to recovery. Okay. So I, I tell you what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite our viewers to join us in an exercise right now, and they're gonna invite Bruce and I to, to uh, respond ourselves in real time here. This Bruce and I haven't prepped. I don't, I don't come in with a ready answer for this and you don't either. Let's see what comes up. And I wanna invite you to participate in this. As in previous uh, uh, podcasts, what I really invite you to do is to write down, I think it can be really helpful to write down your thoughts just to get it out on paper. And Bruce and I'll share here in real time uh, responses to this exercise. So I call this a journal exercise. So if you can get a piece of paper in front of you, if you're sitting at a tablet or a computer, just to write down some responses. What I want to do is I want to ask, uh, first of all, for all of for all of us that are in recovery, to think of an instance in and around recovery, we're in an experience where we felt uh, guilt. So the first example will be an example of guilt. We're going to talk about shame in a few moments. But right now, just focusing on guilt. And if you're not yourself in recovery from addiction, then you know somebody who is. There's not none of us that don't know somebody. And so think of an interaction where you saw somebody who'd done something wrong and that their response was guilt. Uh, and if, for that matter, if you're a mental health practitioner and you've worked with a client, helping them to understand that guilt can have its place in recovery, you can think of that instance. So first of all, think of an example, Bruce and I will do this right now, think of an example where each of us or you uh, as participants today have wronged somebody as a function of addiction or addictive behaviors. So let's pause, think about that for just a second, and just write down what happened. Bruce and I will just think about it, what happened, mm -hmm. we'll start with that. Let's give it a second here. Oh, the list is so long. It's like crazy. I'm I don't know about you. I'm just I'm, like my whole life is passing before my I'm eyes. I'm trying to figure out which one to pick. Ah, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Sometimes it's 
I just go with the first one. Yeah, I'm going to go with the first one too. I, I think I'd like to censor it because it's the first one that came to mind. It's uncomfortable to me, but I think it's, it's real life. Okay. So if you've located an instance of guilt, we're going to unpack it together. The next thing I want us to do is, can you remember back to that instance? Bruce and I will do this. Can you remember back to that instance and what you felt like in your body? What were the sensations associated with that guilt? And then, and, then, and, and then as the final part of this exercise, and then Bruce and I'll share, what was the outcome that followed on uh, the guilt? What was the outcome of that guilt? What did it lead you to do? In the spirit that we talked about earlier, you know, if you stepped on somebody's foot, how did the guilt change your behavior? What did it lead to? I need to shift because the example I thought of is actually an example of shame. So can you give me just a second? Yeah. I realize that it's not going to be a good example of guilt. So let me pull back from it and think of an example of, of uh, 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 an example of shame. Let me just think of an example of guilt. This is uh, during in addiction, though, you're saying, right? Uh, you know, in addiction, actually, in addiction, in around addiction, I should have clarified it because the example I'm thinking of is actually in recovery. Okay. So, so it could be either. Yeah, it could be either. I think by definition, I don't know how this goes for you, when I think of, of, of behaviors that I had, that I, that I was involved in <clears throat> when I was addicted, almost by definition, all of them are associated with shame. Yeah. You know, and so, it, it, and that's the example I thought of was in addiction. And I realized I probably need to think of an example that's not in addiction that's in recovery for me to think of one that I feel guilt about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've, 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 got, I've got a clear thing. That's clarifying to me. You know, I come up with this outline in a vacuum and I realize, wait, 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 wait. It's it, going through this, I realize that even my first answer was one of shame and it's because of the way I set it up. Yeah. So in the context of addiction recovery, what was something that we did that, uh, uh, that made us feel guilty what did that feel like in our bodies, and what came of it? Um, do you want to start? No, you can't. Go ahead. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll start. I'll share. I had to redo it. Uh, the example that comes to mind is that just a few months ago, I was invited to speak to a, uh, a local group of marriage and family therapists, and they were interested in hearing my story. And uh, that's the first time I'd spoken to people in my former profession. I was a clinical psychologist. I lost my license owing to addiction, and now I'm being invited back by a group of licensed therapists to talk about addiction and recovery and tell my story, specifically tell my story. So there I am in front of this group. It was locally, and it was presented to a room full of, of therapists. I'm telling them what happened, and actually my wife is in the room, and she's a marriage and family therapist. And so that ups the ante, as well as... Yeah. Uh, the dean of, the, of, of psychology at my university is there. She's a marriage and family therapist. So I'm speaking to people I know, and I'm telling my story. My wife knows my story because she was with me, in it, but other people don't know all the details. So I'm sharing my story, including my loss of license, including my loss of license on addiction. 
And I don't feel proud about any of that. I feel horrible about that. It's a, it's a, it's a personal, huge personal tragedy to me professionally and also personally. And when I'm presenting to this group, owing to the fact that I'm standing in front of them, I'm worried about being swamped by shame because that'll just pretty well wipe out the presentation. Yeah. And my heart's beating fast. I can, my heart was beating fast. And so what I, what I did is I talked about what happens in active addiction to the brain. And that was actually meant to be not only educational, but also it helped me to remember the state of mind I was in when I was actively addicted and that I'm not in that state of mind now. So my heart's beating fast because we're talking about me having failed professionally owing to addiction. And as I'm talking about it, I'm aware that, and I'm talking to a group of therapists, I'm aware that I'm talking about this is what happens in addiction. And so there's a separation for me from what I did in active addiction from who I am right now because I'm not actively addicted right now. And also there's a separation between what I did as a function of addiction and who I am. Because I know little Bobby Weathers, who was in third grade, may not have been a great artist, but I was not a bad person mm -hmm. any more than I am now. And so to talk about doing bad things in front of a group of your peers is hard to do. And then it's on me to keep straight that my having done bad things as a function of addiction does not, by definition, make me a bad person. And while I'm not saying this to them, I'm needing to remember that, or I'm going to sink sinkhole right in front of them yeah, yeah. and end up like a puddle right there. And what happened, and, and so the experience was I did, I was able to share. The outcome of it was afterwards people came up to me. In fact, I could see as I was presenting, people were in tears. And people came up to afterwards and they said, that's amazing that you're able to sit in front of us and tell your story and do so courageously, you know. And, and the only thing that provides for that courage is to stay in guilt because I was not, like I said, it wasn't, I wasn't flaunting or proud of any of this, to stay in guilt and not get sunk by shame. Is that the only thing? And that's what my, before this presentation, I was out in my car in the parking lot praying that that could happen because I wasn't sure I could pull it off. It was my first encounter in almost 10 years, mm. speaking to my peers, and, and, it, and, and the prayer was granted. And I wasn't that it was pleasant. Guilt is not yeah. pleasant, but it stayed guilt, and it didn't move into shame. And I'm grateful to them because I didn't get shaming responses. I didn't have anybody come up to me and say, I cannot believe that you just told us what you told us. You should be ashamed of you. There was none of that energy in the room. So it helps to be in a group of people that mm -hmm. also... Uh, or not shaming. So that's the story that came to me wow. later in this. Yeah. I'll talk about shame in a minute. How about for yeah. you? How about for you? Well, it's funny because I kind of came up with a couple different stories. And the one I want to tell, I don't know, I, I, I think there may have been shame involved in it. I think it's kind of um, mm. just over time turned into more guilt. Um, but it was, uh, it was actually a I'm just going to switch it because it was the one that kind of came up. Uh, it was in, in addiction, actually. And you can actually talk about both if yeah. you want to because I think you just made an important point. I think shame uh, can transform to guilt. And I, I'd be very happy for you to talk about it just as it came up for you. It yeah. doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's not so clear to yeah, me, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. what it is. But I, I do. I don't know why this came up. It was kind of interesting. But it was in addiction, actually. Uh, and... Um, I remember my uh, my mom in particular. She was planning a birthday party for me, and had gone to a lot of trouble to 
uh, organize this and um, invite a lot of my friends to come, my girlfriend at the time and everything. And um, it was all planned and I was supposed to come at this certain time and, and I, uh, I never went. And um, yeah. I know to some people it may not seem like a big thing, but it was like a big event that was put on for me, and mm -hmm. I was so uh, into into my addiction at the time, and so into myself, and mm -hmm. I just couldn't get it together to go. And uh, and then there was a part of me that, as, as the evening kind of gone on, I, I kind of remembered because I think I had forgotten. And um, you know, you had that uh oh moment mm -hmm. that oh my god. Mm -hmm. And so what that did for me was. Um, it was, it was, a, I had to make a choice. Am I going to deal with this and just go or just say, you know, screw it and, and don't. And I didn't go. Um, and, um, and that, that a lot of feelings around that. And I think, I think, um, I was really fortunate that my mother at the time, cause she put all the effort into it. She really didn't come to me and say, Oh my God, you know, how could you, how could you do this? She, she had some compassion about it at the time, and and so I, I think it helped me stay in guilt instead of going into yeah, shame. Yeah, for sure. Same, for sure. It was partly her reaction. Yeah. Because yeah. I think someone's reaction can just push me into, yes. yeah. into yeah. that place, especially if, like you said, I'm kind of prone to that yeah. you know, already. Yeah. Their so reaction anyway, makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah. 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 Whether it's the group of people I'm talking about, their response uh, helped me to stay in guilt rather yeah. than shame. And your mom's response, right. the same, bless her heart. And yeah. I felt bad enough already. I didn't yeah. need anybody, you know. Yeah. But There's something yeah. that you said as you were describing. I'm not going to remember it, the, the, the exact words of it, but it was something in the way that you talked about it is that, oh, it was, it was when you qualified what happened. You didn't go to the party. You qualified it in the context of I was uh, deep in my addictive behaviors, I yeah. think something along those lines. That right there, what Bruce just did, is the qualifier that makes a huge distinction between shame and guilt is that what kind of person doesn't go to a party? There's something maybe a screw loose, you know, something, yeah. you know, those kinds right, of right, right. things that we'll attribute to one another sure. versus, well, there was a screw loose and it's a function of my addiction, you know, and it's not to make an excuse, it's to understand what happened. And your mom, I guess, was able to understand that. So she, she, yeah, I, she, she I mean, it didn't yeah. make her happy and it must have been a great deal of sorrow for her, but that she was not, she didn't write you off or didn't come at you with a javelin to pierce you or something no. like that, is that suggests that there was some understanding there. Oftentimes people can give us that when it's hard for us to give it to ourselves. And there's another flip side to this is that if we get a lot, a lot of judgment inside, we just talked about this in the group, if we get a lot of judgment from outside, it's next to impossible not to turn that on ourselves. And so it goes both ways. Right. Uh, is that it makes a huge difference the response inside. Yeah, that was something we, in the group earlier today you were talking a little bit about mm -hmm. uh, how we can give that to someone else. We can sort of cut them that slack or that mm -hmm. break, mm -hmm. but it's so hard to do that mm -hmm. for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. I experienced that too. Mm -hmm. Like, I can be so much more forgiving or compassionate. Or like, oh, he just, it was an accident he stepped on my foot, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. We had somebody in the group today, Bruce and I were just talking about it, somebody in the group today that was talking about working on acceptance and uh, self-forgiveness. And I, I think about, I, mean, I think that's right on the money. And, and you could ask the question, well, where does that come from? 
I did ask that question or whatever to come from today in the group. And one of the thoughts is that probably this individual and any one of us need to practice this. And I was curious to see if he'd answer this and he wasn't quite ready to do that yet. But, but uh, I think we have to find ways to practice this. It's one of the, the uh, benefits to me of programs like the 12-step program because I think there's a methodology for beginning to not only stay honest with ourselves like with a moral inventory, but to bring this to other people and to make amends ideally with the hope of healing mm -hmm. so that there can be some bridging of what we've done in, uh, with sincere uh, apology, some bridging to reconnecting. And so there's yeah. the piece of what can I do inside? Uh, we've had several podcasts over the course of time and we'll be doing more on what are some practices for self-compassion. So I think that there's a lot to be done that we can do on our own. Uh, and I think that's kind of where he was going today. I think there's also what you're talking about with your mom mm. or me with this group of people is I think that, that we also help to reduce our shame by being in the context of other people that are not shaming us. So if you have those voices or I have those voices, what we're calling shame proneness inside, that they're very much affected by who we hang out with. And so if I want to spend as much of my time as I can with people that are grace giving. Right. As we've made a distinction before, I'm not talking about cheap grace that would say, oh, it's okay. It's okay you didn't come to the party. Yeah. It's okay that you ruined your career, Bob. It's not okay. It's not okay. Prefer the idea of costly grace, that is to say, that you face with responsibility, what we're calling rightful guilt, that you face responsibility for what you've done and that I do that, but that we do that within a context of love. That makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Somebody's written in a comment here. Thank you, Austin. Let's see what they say. How do I stop thinking about cocaine? It's what my brain goes to when I'm not doing anything. They continued, my main problem is feeling bored and not being able to be myself when I'm not on it. The outcome was I became depressed and ended up doing more drugs. Okay, let me just give me a second with that. Okay, let me work with that in terms of what we just we talked about. I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to tie this into the next exercise. I'm going to come back to this. Could you leave it up, Austin? Mm -hmm. I want to come back to it. I want to tie it into the next exercise, and that is for us to write down an example of shame. Write down an example of shame. And I think what I want to do, since we're, we're uh, nearing the end of our hour, is rather than you and I coming up with another example, or we could yep. actually go with your example. I'd like to use the example that just got shared okay. and flesh that out if we can do okay. that. And let's see if we can apply that. So I want us to write down an example of shame. Thanks for your comments. <laughs> I want to write down an example of shame. That would be a time where it's not that you missed the party and uh, uh, and that it's not okay that you did that, but it's a function of being addicted, or that I, I made choices that radically changed my whole life, including my career. Themselves, those decisions were made in, in, a, in a, an addicted, uh, uh, I don't say like frame of mind, like, yeah. like state of mind. Out of your addiction, yeah. Yeah, out of my addiction. But we're talking about that Bruce didn't go to the party because there's something wrong with Bruce. I mean, to the core, or Bob. Bob did what Bob did, and again, same same issue. Something wrong with the core. 
out of being who we are rather than out of, out of addiction, mm -hmm. since we're talking about this. So I want you to think of an example of, of shame, ideally in the context of recovery. We're gonna tie in the example of this contribution from one of our viewers. <clears throat> I want you to, to look at what happened. And I'm gonna spell this out with this example. What happened with this particular example is this individual says that they were bored weren't sure they knew how to be themselves without being on cocaine. I presume found cocaine as at least a temporary solution to boredom. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna skip ahead. They said the outcome was I became depressed and ended up doing more drugs. Let's look at that for just a second in terms of attribution. You could attribute that process. You know, I talked earlier about kind of a vicious cycle we'd get into. Let's say that I'm bored Let's say that I'm vulnerable to shame. Let's say I'm vulnerable to depression. Well, if I can find a way to self-medicate, wouldn't it make sense to do that? Well, of course, then I start doing that. And it starts off, let's say it's with cocaine, or it's with alcohol, or it's with heroin, so it's methamphetamine. Find something that radically, radically alters my subjective sense of things. Well, that's a great thing, except then there's all this downside that I didn't think about ahead of time, or didn't really adequately realize. That was the case for me. I didn't realize once I went down that rabbit hole how far I would go, and it seemed like it worked until it didn't work, and it pretty quickly stopped working, but I kept, at that point, now I'm chemically addicted to it. I don't feel like myself unless I'm high or seeking to get high. I'm really only depressed, and now my depression is made worse by the fact that I'm going through these dips because I'm off of alcohol or off of cocaine or whatever the substance is. Bottom line is that, I kind of back to that, uh, uh, that image we used earlier, where the poor get poorer, I'm already suffering. And on top of it, now I'm really struggling. In fact, if we want to pick boredom as an example, one of the things that happens with any addiction is that the brain kicks in a response to the addictive behaviors, whether it's taking a drug or another addictive behavior like gambling, or we've talked about pornography here, any other addiction, what happens is that my brain begins to calibrate differently, so I'm actually left in a state of chronic boredom. I don't experience natural mm -hmm. pleasures anymore. The technical term that we've talked about is anhedonia, the loss of typical pleasures that characterizes active addiction. And so I only thought I was bored, and now what I'm doing is I've got this addiction, so I'm experiencing uh, these radical highs with massive troughs that manifest, among other things, as being depressed and bored. And so you could say, what kind of person gets depressed? What kind of person gets bored? Um, what kind of person takes drugs? And you could, and you could say, I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. And you could say, Bob, just say no. And then if I don't say no, then you can say, oh, you're also a weak person. Now you're a weak person. They can't say no. This isn't to excuse it all, the cycle that I'm in, but those kinds of attributions, if they're coming from you towards me, Bob, you're weak, those probably won't be helpful any more than if your mom labeled you as weak yeah. or this group labeled me as weak. And then the worst of it is when I internalize that, and now I, I see myself as weak, and guess what I'm going to do when I feel weak? I'm going to want to feel better. And guess where I'm going to turn? Right. Chances are not to the Bible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Chances are I'm going to turn to what's most radically altered my subjective experience, which is my drug of choice or whatever my addictive behavior is. And so I hope that this kind of helps flesh out the fact that you start off with a, with a, with a, a set of conditions 
whatever was going on for you that led to your addiction, whatever was going on for me that led to my addiction, we get involved in addictive behaviors, we make massive mistakes. You made a mistake. I made a, I made some, a whole series of massive mistakes. And then on top of that, then what we receive is judgment from outside or from within. And then our solution to that judgment is to, uh, the, the way that we resolve the shame is to take something that ironically ends up only exacerbating or making the shame worse. It amplifies it. Mm, yep. And anybody that's been in any uh, longer term active addiction knows exactly what we're talking about here. Totally. Is that the said solution to the shame actually becomes part of the problem. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire and you only thought you had a fire and now you have an explosion going on. Yeah. And that's part and parcel of addiction. Do you want to comment yeah. on this? Is it? Uh, you know, the only thing I said, I mean, it makes total sense is that it's just, you're, you know, just like this person is saying is, you know, they were, they were bored, they would do the drugs, right, and, and, which would pump them up and then get off it and then the, the, the lack of the drug has the exact opposite mm -hmm. effect of feeling depressed and then what am I going to do? Yeah. So it's the total cycle that yeah. you, that you yeah. just explained. Yeah. As you were sharing, I reread the first sentence of first sentence. How do I stop thinking about cocaine? It's what my brain goes to when I'm not doing anything. I, I'm going to say this figuratively, and I don't mean it literally, but it's, it's like I think especially in early recovery, you have to tie somebody to a mast is that my brain is only going to default to cocaine. Right. It's going to default to whatever my addictive behavior is. Uh, 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 and especially when I'm not doing anything else. It's what my, we can talk about biologically, owing to what happens in the brain about the activation of the dopamine system, is that my brain is going to set again and again and again. It's the source of our cravings. And somebody needs to tie me down, hold me. Now there's ways not literally of doing that that are related to getting in treatment, getting medical attention to help regulate the body in terms of good nutrition. Uh, I believe very strongly in addressing the psychiatric end of it. So for example, if I have a long lasting depression that I've been treating with cocaine, can we address my depression in some other form than, than snorting lines of cocaine? And it's possible with an evaluation that I might benefit from antidepressant uh, therapy with some kind of medication. I'm all for that if it makes sense. And in the meantime, do whatever we can to help regulate me so that I don't relapse. And the good thing, and we've been talking about a lot of bad things, the good thing about recovery is the rich get richer. If I can get a week under my belt of recovery, that's rebuilding brain and rebuilding uh, 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 fortitude for being able to address the cravings. Two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months. I see clients, you and I both see clients that have been in recovery for two or three months. They're a completely different state of resiliency than they are when we, we first see them. Oh, and I look at that almost completely biologically. If you can, if you can recreate a biological foundation, or what I like to think of as biological integrity, you're going to have a lot of resources at your disposal. And that the, the the key, the trick of this is to stay sober. It's, it's actually, I think, we, we and I just talked about this. I think sobriety is the handmaiden to transformation, is that if you don't have literal sobriety, in this case from cocaine, then everything else that you would want in terms of addressing psychological, even spiritual issues, falls uh, down. It's, it's all contingent on that. So to develop that foundation, this is why I believe really strongly in, for example, an inpatient treatment, some place that I'm going to be ideally protected from being yep. exposed to my dealer, the liquor store, my, my drug of choice, whatever it is, to be protected from that. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I much prefer that to incarceration because I think the treatment works. I'm not so sure, well, I'm quite sure that incarceration does not work. There's a lot of information that suggests that doesn't work. It keeps you off the streets. I just read something this week 
the statistic is something like this in our prisons. Can this be true? 50% of people in our prisons are actively using. It's, 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 it was some, I tend to exaggerate, so I'll own that, <laughs> okay? But it was some horrific statistic about the access to uh, mind-altering substances in prison. That's not where you go to be <laughs> cleared of that. You can find substance in a treatment center. And so what we want to do is make sure you're in a decent treatment center where you're being protected from exposure to the mind-altering substances until you can build up some... Uh, some strength inside to resist cravings and then begin to do the work to address whatever it was, whether it's in this case depression or boredom. That's the work I do with my background in psychology is around, for example, addressing boredom. But it's a moot issue if somebody's using because yeah. that's the brain is just doing this. Uh, my brain did this, your brain did that. And so there's no judgment in this other than just a reality check. And so what can we do to get ourselves to not use long enough to be able to address, to address issues like depression, like shame, like boredom? You want to say? Yeah. No, I, I totally, totally agree. And I'll just also put a little plug in there for recovery programs, 12-step groups or whatever yes, as thank well. thank you, thank you. As yeah. part of the mix yeah. because I know that like from people that I work with in my own experience is that usually when I'm in community in that kind of a program, the, I don't, I'm not think the, the, the cravings aren't so visible to me, yeah. you know, because yeah. I'm, 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 I'm connected to yes. something outside myself. My brain is yeah. occupied and I'm connected to people who yeah. also have been, you know, can relate to what's going on with yeah. me. Yeah, I fully agree. I really appreciate you mentioning that, is that just as you and I were talking earlier, your mom connecting to you, uh, this group connecting to me, ideally you and I connecting to this individual who shared this with us today, there's strength in numbers and especially, psychology calls it co-regulation, the idea that my emotional uh, state whether it's depression or shame or some other unpleasant state, it's very much regulated by our relationship. Mm -hmm. it's, we don't operate as islands. We can do that, but to our great expense. So one of the geniuses of any of the self-help support programs, in my view, is like 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 the 12-step programs, is that you've got you've got a consensus, you've got a group of people that universally share the issue of wanting to recover from addiction. And so you've got you've got a compassionate response, as with your mom, mm -hmm. as with this group. You've got a group that A knows what's going on. They've been through that and they're not going to judge you and so it stands to reason that that becomes a part of your uh, your strength as you move forward is that we can't do that alone you really stand on the shoulders of those that came before us so really uh, I know that Bruce and I are very committed to self-help support groups in our in our in our own lives and it continues on because uh, 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 the vulnerabilities that I have, I'm I'm no longer actively addicted, and thank goodness for that. But the vulnerabilities I have, owing to where I've gone with addiction, I value ongoing support from people that get it. It's another thing I've talked about, and, and you're bringing this up, is that there are not a, so, a lot of social groups. There's not even a lot of churches I can think of, or other religious organizations, where I can go and talk transparently about my addiction and not get attitude. Yeah. <laughs> and so thank you very much. I'd like to find a group of people and I have found them, including with you, Bruce, where I can talk transparently, honestly, which is very helpful and meaningful to me and, and, and learn to anticipate a compassionate response. I mean, that's, that's, uh, and like, I want to stop that at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't really, I don't really see that something I want to stop. I really value that. You and I are talking about that. We actually want to increase that. Exactly. <laughs> and bring it out more. Yeah. We're going to wrap it up, you guys. I want to share this image here, uh, Odie of Toxic Shame. Uh, is an Im image that I think really captures this sense of having people standing around us pointing their finger at us in judgment. 
And then the worst of it, like we talked about earlier, is when that becomes me. That becomes inside my skull, inside my being. And I don't know how this has gone for you, Bruce, but I know that for me, the worst of shame coming from the outside is when I began to, uh, those voices became my own. And it didn't matter if you judged me, you might not judge me, but I couldn't access that because I've got those fingers pointing to me. Yeah. That was the worst of it for me in early recovery. Yeah. And it nearly took me out, nearly took me out. Mm -hmm. In the spirit of what we've talked about here, there is hope. There is hope, and I think one of the uh, what I want to leave you with today is there's hope in being able to distinguish between uh, guilt and shame. To make this distinction is not just a semantic distinction; it's like a life-giving distinction. If you can begin to find uh, resources, whether it's in support groups or within yourself, within your family, within friends, and so on, resources of people that will hold us accountable for our behavior, but at the same time not write us off. Shame does the latter, guilt does the former. That uh, that can make all the difference. That can make all the difference. You know, you and I both know about the rooms being in being in twelve step support groups. There's no easy grace there. No. People hold each other accountable, and uh, it sometimes can be very harsh, very harsh, tough love. But it's uh, my experience has been it's always in the context of wanting the best for me, mm -hmm. and believing the best in me. Mm -hmm. And uh, me too. That difference makes all the difference. So, so thank you all, Bruce. Thank you for joining thank us today. You. Thank My you pleasure. all. Thanks yeah, for having me. Great, great having you here today. It it's really a pleasure. Next week we'll be looking at holistic approaches to recovery, and I'll be talking specifically about four different components of what makes a, a, a holistic recovery approach. In fact, holistic. So come back and join us next week. If you have any final questions, I want to encourage you to write those to, to uh, Austin um, at our Facebook group or on YouTube. He'll get those to me. You're also welcome to reach out to me at my website, drbobweathers.com. You can contact me there, and plenty of people do. Just send me any questions or comments you have. I'm happy to, uh, happy to respond. One final comment here. Somebody's talking about also loving the book Addiction and Grace. <laughs> I'm surprised, huh? I love that book by Gerald May. It's one of my favorite books, too. I'm glad that you're getting a lot out of that. Uh, uh, and we, we talked some time ago about the word surprise, that surprise, the etymology of the word surprise's origins are in Latin. Sur is from above, and prize comes from the root for prehension, which is like a monkey has a prehensile tail. Mm -hmm. It literally means to be taken. And so the, the root meaning of surprise is to be taken from above. So this person is referring to that, getting sober from surprise, being called from above, contemplation, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. And as this person said, some people can quit cold turkey. They get that. It was a little bit rougher for me. I don't early recovery, but I guarantee you that if we can build in some resources into our lives, whether it's interpersonal between uh, us and other people or ourselves, and I know that for me it's daily practice, you and I were talking about this, daily practice of uh, my daily meditations include a self-forgiveness component. We're practicing that I actually have come over the last five, six years to believe it. <laughs> so, as I've shared before, and I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, probably have shared this with you, Bruce, is that if I started off a half a dozen years ago when I got into recovery, 90% in shame, which is probably an underestimate, uh, I think that's turned around to where right now it's probably 10% in shame, which is to say I'm still vulnerable. You can say something that will activate my shame and I'll contract into a little ball, that's for sure, but I feel 90% protected from that which is not the same as saying 90% guilty. 
<laughs> just to say that when I've done something wrong, I tend not to go down the rabbit hole of shame. And that is a pretty short period of time. Yes, it is. Six years of practicing most every morning self-forgiveness practice, which I learned through refuge recovery mm -hmm. early on. And you just practice that never, and eventually you get surprised. Eventually you get taken from above. So I'm grateful for that. That's Thank wonderful. you all for joining us today. Thanks again, Bruce. Thank you. Blessings Thank to you all. Well. See you all next week. Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Peace.